on deck on turning the corner. The Athletics' Cody Stavenhagen and co-host Karen Steckley dive deep into Alavila's comments, examine some early good returns from prospects, and Cody takes the fall for Derrick Hill's injury. And welcome into another episode of Turning the Corner, a Detroit Tigers podcast. I am Kieran Steckley. With me, the Athletics' Cody Stavenhagen, the master of the keystroke, the beat writer extraordinaire. Cody, how you doing today, man? Master of the keystroke. I like that one. Doing all right. Doing all right. Saturday morning here, so a, a little bit earlier than normal. Normally, we're night owls here, but going early this time. Well, the thing is, we're going early, so you can be a night owl. So it's really all in the same uh, in the same category. If I, I want to get this out of the way real quick, if the audio sounds a little bit different on my end, I'm recording in an open kitchen. There's thunderstorms going on. I got a couple dogs that get really anxious during storms. My fiance is at work, so I don't want them to uh, to be too stressed. So I think if I'm here as opposed to in a closed room, they'll feel a little bit better. So. If it sounds a little bit different, that would be the reason why. So let's jump into it, Cody. Uh, you are fresh off getting a chance to talk to Al Avila, not just via Zoom either. So I guess this is kind of like a two-parter. You got to do a little bit more of a normal beat writer experience as COVID protocols get sort of loosened. And he talked about something that we discussed last week, which, by the way, we haven't called anything. But I think we talked about the trade deadline. Next week, Al comes out. He talks about it. There could be a correlation there. There could not. So so the experience of being out there in person doing these interviews and what the, the actual content of what the general manager of the Detroit Tigers had to say. Yeah, it was a good week for baseball writers across the country, media members. Um, if you're fully vaccinated, you can now be on the field for um, a certain amount of time before games. So it's not quite the same as um, true access when you can be in the clubhouse and, and um, you know, kind of hang out more. But you can go on the field. You can uh, set up, you know, interviews with players and I think beyond that, the biggest thing is you just get some human interaction, you know, um, you know, beyond interviewing people, it's being able to shake hands with Ramon Santiago and make small talk a little bit, or, uh, you know, was able to just chat with David Chad and, and Al Avila the first day down there, kind of off the record. Um, and I think those are as valuable as anything, just being able to say hi to the players and, and you figure out pretty quickly which ones know your name and which ones like you and which ones like are afraid to make eye contact with you as a reporter. It's kind of funny, um, you know, so you, you get that whole experience and adds an element of humanity that's really been missing from this job over the past year. So I think that that made it more fun this week just to be around, just to see some people face-to-face, to to, uh, to see Chris Fetter face-to-face for the first time since he's had this job. You know, stuff like that's been very good. Now, Alavila did a formal on-the-record media session on Friday. Uh, And I'm just going to say this, for a split second, I was almost like, man, I miss Zoom, because we had a bunch of reporters crowded around Al. Reporters still have to wear their masks, but we're like, you don't technically even have to be distanced if from him if you're vaccinated but for some reason we were like six feet away and he's like talking to a microphone it's outside it's hot al is like sweating and you have to like shout to get your question in that's one thing on, on as someone who's not a big fan of like shouting maybe doesn't have the loudest voice i like where zoom like you just kind of type like question and then it's like a roll call and it gets to you this is like kind of the almost it's not like in the movies, but it's you know it is. It's a bunch of reporters shouting, trying to get their question in. I feel like uh, I feel like that's not my preferred setting. But anyway, we talked to Al for a solid twenty minutes. I was somehow able to get a couple questions in there, and the gist of the conversation, I don't know, nothing that newsworthy to come out of it. And to be honest, I'm not surprised. It was good to hear from the GM as we're. Uh, really only a little more than a month out from the trade deadline and we have the draft coming up also in July but there's not much he can say you know he can't go out there and say oh we're gonna deal Spencer Turnbull 
you know, and this is exactly what we want in return. He can't sit here and say, oh, we'd really love to draft Marcelo Meyer, but if he's not there, we'll probably take Jack Leiter. Like, he can't say that. Um, so it, it was kind of a, a lot of nothing. But asked about, like, kind of his approach to the trade deadline, I think he did make clear, you know, this isn't they're not going to be as aggressive of sellers as they have been in the past few years. I think we kind of talked about that last week and that, they're in this position where you'd probably like to add a young bat or two. You might look to make a move if it really makes you better. Uh, but you're not trading just to trade. You know, He said we'd be more apt to keep a core, keep a nucleus of guys, and build around them. Um, and I think that was his overarching point. Like he said, he's told other GMs already, we don't have to make a trade. So if you're calling us, you better have a pretty decent offer. Now I think that varies what tier of player you're talking about. If it's a Spencer Turnbull, maybe even a Jamer Candelario, uh, Tigers are not going to be trading those guys for nothing. But they do still have guys on expiring one-year deals, Jonathan Scope, Jose Urania, um, or maybe even bullpen pieces like uh, like Jose Cisnero that I could see them being a little more open-minded to trading um, going into July. Did he give any sort of indication of... Like, do you think do you think their board is set for that number three overall pick, or do you think they're still sort of, you know, maybe we like this guy a little bit more than this guy, you know, because he did say like we're gonna take the best player regardless position, high school or college or whatever. Um, so I wonder if they've decided who their best player is. Yeah, I think we've talked about this on this podcast before. If I had to guess, I think Marcelo Meyer, the high school shortstop out of California is number one on their list. Uh, problem is he's really jumped up to number one on the lists of some other teams. So he might not get to three. I think that's the big question really is what are the pirates going to do atop the draft? Are the Rangers actually locked into Jordan Lawler? I'm not so sure they are. And so I think if uh, Meyer's gone, I, I, I think the Tigers really like, the idea of a high school shortstop. So if Lawler's there, I think he could be an option. Brady House is probably more of a third baseman long-term, but he's got a pretty good bat. And I think the Tigers' infatuation with Jackson Joe, the high school pitcher out of Oklahoma, is real. I think that could also be a very interesting decision if Meyer's gone. Would you go a prep arm like Joe over a Jack Leiter or a Kumar Rocker? Uh, I think the Tigers might just believe that Joe actually has the highest ceiling but as I've said before, like, are you really going to pass on these established Vanderbilt pitchers? I think that would be, uh, you would have to be really sure about, you know, an 18-year-old arm. And it's it's hard to ever be really sure about an 18-year-old arm. So, you know, so, someone asked me this week, you know, kind of joking, like, my take, who would you take at three? And I said, Meyer. And he said, what if, what if Meyer's not there? And I said, well, then I'd freak out, you know. <laughs> and he kind of laughed. I think that might be the same. I think Freakout's putting it strongly, but uh, I don't think there's like a set decision yet. And there's still a month of baseball left. There's the College World Series, and we're going to see more of these Vandy arms. Um, I'm sure some of these prep players will be facing more elite pitching here in the coming weeks. So there's still some time for things to things to change. It seems to me that it, the, the, the prep arm is the riskiest of the uh, type of prospect, and that's not specific to, to Jackson, but just in general. I think someone on Twitter tagged both of us in it, uh, put out like a list of prep arms basically since 2000. And, you know, there's, a, there's you know, Clayton Kershaw in there. There's uh, Dylan Bundy. Uh, Josh Beckett, who's jo- a Josh Beckett. Chad draft pick. Um, there's also a lot of dudes that, like, unless you're really into this stuff, you ain't never heard of them. So, and, and that, and you know, that, that kind of risk gets assessed all the time, but I, I am curious if, if Meyer is off the board and they take Joe, we would never get the answer to this, but someone in that room would have to like really bang the table for him. Like, like, like I'm telling you, this guy has more upside. His stuff is better than lighter than rocker and whoever that person is better be heavily trusted and maybe have really good coaching connections in the Oklahoma circles or 
you know, whatever, because I I do think that nailing this pick goes a really long way toward getting where you want and missing it could really set you back, especially if you miss on a high school pitcher as opposed to taking a guy, maybe like a lighter or a rocker who upside isn't as great, but very much looks like a major league pitcher. Um, and in regards to the best player, regardless of position thing, it's going to be very interesting if they do end up with uh, with Lawler or Meyer and then what they do in free agency. I know I'm kind of skipping ahead, but it, 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 there could potentially be a decent logjam. You take a, high, a prep shortstop and then you still sign to a big contract a Carlos Correa, a Trevor Story, whatever, and I don't think drafting either one of those prep guys should prevent should dis, you know prevent you from going after a top uh, player at the major league level because it's about asset accumulation, right? So there's so many moving parts to uh, the draft, the trade deadline, free agency that we could we could spend all day talking about very different scenarios, and I'm just. I'm really, I'm just really curious to see like how they want to approach each and every one of them because the point of the article that you wrote, which is available on the Athletic, you can read if you're a subscriber, was uh, something you said on this podcast. The real stuff, it's all upcoming. Like it, this is the real testament to, um, to how Al is building building this squad this uh this system in Detroit and you know and he's gonna keep he's gonna keep all that close to the vest but uh you said it you've written it does Al look at it the same way uh, in the words of Al Avila that's a good question um <laughs> I, I I don't know I think I mean I think he probably does I think he knows the stakes are very high he knows there's some pressure on his job right now. He knows that the margin for error um, is slim. Obviously, these upcoming decisions would probably be easier if the Tigers had a little bit more of a core established right now. If their return in some of these trades was better and they had a couple guys they could really point to as, okay, we're trying to build around this guy who's already established at the MLB level. So this isn't to, to say like the past six years of the Avila era don't matter. I'm saying, the, yeah, you talk about what happens in this draft, what happens in next year's free agency, what happens with the development of Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green. What do you do with Spencer Turnbull, Matt Boyd, Jamer Candelario? Like Those decisions are going to have very palpable impacts on what the 2024 and 2025 Detroit Tigers look like. And at the end of the day, that's when this team is trying to compete. That's what it's going to be all about. And I'm sure Alavila is very aware of all that. Um, although every decision matters, the impact of probably the decisions made in the next 12 months are going to be real palpable uh, looking ahead. Now, we follow the guys in the minors. Um, and obviously, they're looking at all those those dudes closely, the Matt Mannings of the world, Spencer, Riley, uh, Dylan Dingler. Does he what did he give and did Al give any sort of like indication of their approach with especially I don't know I guess there's less to say about Manning he struggled he's trying to work it out we're gonna call him up when it's appropriate I feel like that's pretty basic but there's there's a couple different avenues you could choose to go with Riley Green with uh with Torkelson with Dingler did he give any sort of indication of like how they're sort of seen how they sort of see that playing out for this season specifically. Yeah, I mean, he said they've already had conversations regarding promoting Torkelson and Dingler to double A. He, uh, he threw Daniel Cabrera in that conversation too. So that doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow, but it means these guys are playing really well in West Michigan. If they keep it up, they're probably going to be in Erie sooner rather than later. And then, you know, it's easy to say, well, if they tear it up in Erie, do you send them to triple A? You kind of have to pump the brakes. So you kind of have to see if they perform in Erie before you even really start having that conversation. Uh, a common thing anyone in player development will tell you is like players let you know when they're ready. Uh, I would argue Dylan Dingler and Spencer Torkelson right now are letting you know that, that they're ready for double A. 
you could argue maybe it's worth being more cautious with these guys, letting them have a little more of a sustained, um, you know, sustained success. But I think it's clear these are college players. These were, um, you know, a first round pick and, and the Tigers number two pick who are pretty established guys who are experienced. So I think I would be in favor of shooting them up to double A and then they probably get a little longer at the double A AA and triple A levels than uh, than class A than high A. But I think it's it's pretty clear that uh, they can handle that level, and it's time for a a um, bigger challenge soon. For Matt Manning, Al didn't say a ton, although you know Matt Manning's ERA is is sky high right now. But he did say, you know, keep an eye out. We'll let you know when the time comes for him to get to the big leagues. And I think that's. Matt Manning's start to the season was really poor. Um, his last outing was actually pretty good. He went six innings, only allowed, I think, two runs. But the numbers, you know, it's not going to be about the numbers so much. We don't have to wait for Matt Manning's ERA to come all the way down to three. If he has five really good starts in a row, you know, I think he could be a legit contender to get up to the majors, especially as the Tigers get tested for pitching depth here as the summer goes on. Well, on that category real quick, uh, I, we're getting kind of close to where we should probably be really closely paying attention to the amount of innings that Scooble and Mize are throwing because um, they've been rotation regulars this entire season, and we know that there is some sort of, I don't want to say cap, but for lack of a better term, maybe a soft cap on how much they're going to want, organizationally, they're going to want them to throw. I mean, we're we're getting kind of close to that, aren't we? Or we should kind of, you know, be monitoring that. What what was Mize at? Mize at 70-something innings? I think Mize is at 70 innings. And in, in the past, the Tigers and other organizations as well, you know, you like to give your um, – the pitcher's about a 30% increase year over year, your young pitchers. So Mize in 2019 through, you know, 109 innings. And, and there's the whole question, like, what do you do with 2020? Does that count? Do you go a 30% increase based on 2019? You know, if so, Mize could go uh, between 130 and 140 innings. So he just, he's already halfway there. We're not quite at the halfway point in the season. That, that definitely... Um, makes me think you have to slow him down a little bit. And, and AJ Hinch just talked about it before that uh, he'll probably do like he did with Tarek Skubal earlier and give Mize some extra rest or maybe use him in, in short stints or almost in like a bullpen role for, for just a couple of weeks as a way to manage that load. Skubal's also at 60 innings. Uh, he actually threw 122 innings in 2019 if you remember Mize was actually injured and shut down for part of 2019 so you could argue that maybe Scooble could go a little longer uh, but he's already had his innings limited a little bit more but the thing is it's definitely a real conversation and then you look at just the rash of injuries both on the Tigers and across Major League Baseball they're way up the Tigers uh, pitching depth has thinned out pretty quickly so there are going to be some tough decisions to make there to figure out how you make these innings add up over the rest of the season and another thing Alavila did allude to that's going to impact how a lot of teams approach the trade deadline not just the Tigers teams might be number one really seeking to add pitching but also more hesitant to give pitching away uh, just because of the amount of injuries and you have to be able to get through a season somehow so you, you said that you had off the record conversations with Al and, and David. Uh, obviously, can't disclose any of that. But what are those guys like when the when the microphone is off, the camera's off? Just kind of like you know, personally, you know, what can you can you humanize them a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the good things about about kind of the culture of baseball. Um, a lot of times, especially kind of the old school's not the right word, but yeah, Alan, David, Chad, you know, they're in their 50s, their 60s, they're not, uh, I think some of these button-up sabermetric types aren't as laid back, but they're still, you know, Alan, David, Chad are, are you know, scouting guys, and they're, they're still pretty fun to talk to and just laugh with and joke around, um, you know. Yeah, I don't know, it's... 
like do they have a big sense of humor like do they do they do they um you know can they yeah yeah i think david chad's kind of got this dry sense of humor he's like a kansas guy went to kansas state and he very much kind of embodies that and he He's got a little drawl to him, you know, and he'll he'll kind of crack these dry jokes. Al, uh, Al can have moments where he's some days he gets in a role where he's just hilarious. He can be brutally honest, uh, whether it's about players or, or other organizations or stuff like that. Uh, but some days, I don't know. I went up to him right after his media session. Al, um, you know, started his career coaching with Paul Maneri, the LSU coach who just retired. They coached together. Um, at St. Thomas University in Miami, and I said, hey, did you, like, send Paul some vodka for his retirement? And Al just, he kind of looked at me, he's like, no, I just called him. I was like, no, I was, I was like, trying to make a joke, man. Like, <laughs> he, he didn't find it funny for some reason. <laughs> so, you never really know. I think it's, uh, yeah, you kind of have to catch him in, in the right mood, for sure. But I, I think they're both fun guys to talk to, at the very least. So, uh, another little organizational uh, organizational development this week. Uh, Jose Cruz Jr., speaking of college, Jose Cruz Jr. leaving the Tigers organization to be the head coach at Rice, head baseball coach at Rice, which... Uh, I'm sure people in Michigan are aware, but you and I being from Texas, I mean, that is a fine baseball program down there in Houston. And uh, and your boy Mike Hessman coming up to, to replace him. So uh, what are they uh, losing in Jose, and what are they gaining in Mike? Yeah, really, a couple of really interesting moves. It was kind of weird to log on Twitter and, and see uh, a report that, one of the Tigers' assistants is going to Rice. I was like, wait, what? But then you think about it. Jose Cruz Jr. is a Rice alum. His family is kind of royalty in Houston. Trey Cruz, the Tigers' draft pick, went to Rice. So the guy knows the program well. He doesn't really have like college coaching experience. But the guy was just a big league assistant for the first time. He's a young guy. He's dynamic. I could see him being a very good recruiter. And he's able to be close to home, close to his family. Um, kind of all that good stuff. I, I feel bad I never got to uh, meet Jose Cruz Jr. because of all the uh, you know the protocols that kept us from being on the field until now. And then of course AJ uh, does not make his assistance available for formal media interviews. So kind of disappointed. I've, I talked to him on the phone after the Tigers drafted Trey Cruz last year, and he does. He seems like a very energetic guy. Um, comes at things with the perspective of a former former player. Just looking at him from afar, he still is built like a player. Looks like he could go out there right now and uh, and um, you know hold down a couple different positions. And I think that's why AJ wanted him, you know, to to compliment Scott Kuba. He wanted this younger, dynamic hitting coach who uh, maybe could come about things from a different perspective. So it'll be interesting to to watch him going to Rice. And I think it's really cool that Mike Hessman gets the call up, as a lot of you you guys are probably aware. Mike Hessman is the all-time minor league home run king. He had 433 career homers in the minors. Shout out Crash Davis. Yes, he's the real-life Crash Davis. Uh, it is um, both a complicated and extraordinary feat because there's a certain degree of failure that is involved with being the minor league home run king. He had a couple cups of coffee in the big leagues but could just never stick. I did a big story on Mike Hessman in 2019, which I uh, shared on my Twitter earlier this week, talking about, like, why, you know, he was the hitting coach in Toledo. It was like, so you spent the majority of your career in the minors, and here you are still in the minors, coaching away. And one thing he said toward the end of that story is that I really hope I get another chance at the highest level. Um, and now he's going to get it. He's going to fill in for Jose Cruz, and he's going to be the Tigers' assistant hitting coach for the rest of the regular season. I think one of the cool things, he's kind of risen up with a lot of these prospects in the organization. Uh, Jake Rogers, Daz Cameron, I think this will be the third different level he's coached these guys at. He started in Erie. He went to Toledo. Now he's going to be in the big leagues. I've heard a lot of players speak highly of Mike Hessman, and it seems as though he's also really adapted to um, you know, just modern technology. Guy's big on video. I think he, he embraces, you know, the hit tracks and some of the tools that the Tigers have available at their disposal. So although he's a former player, it seems like he's really gotten up to speed on 
um, modern ways of thinking about hitting and studying hitting and, and seems to have a knack for relating to his players as well. Yes, and um, Cody had tweeted that out when the news broke that story. It's also available, of course, on The Athletic. Uh, another story that that you wrote this week, Eric Haas, uh, the hometown kid angle was obviously very well known. I had no idea this guy got married at like 19 or whatever and and had like uh, a young family, you know, with with children and stuff and going through the rigmarole of uh of trying to establish yourself as a professional ball player in these little towns and minor leagues and travel and then also like you know helping raise a family because there's you know you got to dedicate so much time to the game there's only so much you can do so um obviously he's married to an amazing woman who a signed up for that and b you know is doing more than uh is carrying the load more than than typically so did you learn anything about eric haas in your process of reporting this story well, I came in and I think I wanted to highlight, yeah, his his journey in addition to, yeah, he's from Michigan, yeah, he has all this, but this guy spent parts of eight years in the minors before he even got a chance in the big leagues and then just kind of barely sniffed the big leagues um, with the Indians. Get ready for a weird parallel. I'm looking, Eric Haas had 2,500 plus at bats in the minors. I think he only, he hit a lot of homers in the minors, but I think only like 130 or so if you go do the math. Uh, which is not quite Mike Hessman's 433. Go back to my Mike Hessman story. I took a picture in Toledo of the the Mike Hessman sign uh, that's out there, and in that story uh, you can see the scoreboard, and Eric Haas was at bat for the Columbus Clippers the day I took that picture. Very strange parallel that I didn't notice until I I looked back at the Hessman story. But in a way, these guys are similar. They've, They've grinded, they've put in the time, they've just been waiting for this chance. With Haas, it's been cool because obviously the chance does come for his hometown team. In the ballpark, he grew up going to games. You know, where he waited for Alan Trammell's autograph when Tram was the manager, where he watched Miguel Cabrera, and now he's, you know, hitting behind Miguel Cabrera in the Tigers' order. And not only that, the guy has eight home runs and has been on an absolute tear. Um, I don't know that he's going to necessarily keep that up. I mean, he's always had a powerful swing. This guy has a, a track record of hitting for power. Now hitting for average is, is a whole other thing. But, uh, yeah, talking with Haas, I, I think it's interesting how his – his image and his personality are, are a little bit different. You know, you see the eye black and the beard, and here's this gritty catcher who was in the minors forever. And then you talk to him, and he's kind of soft-spoken, and he talks about his wife, and he, he still seems a little in awe of being here. And he's, uh, you know, he's not near as rough around the edges as you might think. He's, he's kind of a, a nice, almost maybe a little bit more of a quiet guy who I think is just trying to keep his head down and, and keep going to work, even though he's tearing it up in the majors right now. And, you know, probably the the greatest compliment that I, as an observer of the team, can give him and Jake Rogers, this applies to him as well, is I've sort of forgotten they weren't the catchers in April. Uh, and neither one of them, not only that, but neither one of them was on the major league roster. And I, I foresee little reason to change those guys being you know, your, I guess, call them everyday catchers, you know, just like, you know, the normal rotation because uh, Ramos was cool when he was hitting, but we saw he was exactly who we thought he was, power, really lacking behind the plate. And Grayson, you know, Griner, we, you know, we we knew that he was a marginal major leaguer. It was nice that he got another shot. Unfortunate that he got injured, but this seems like the group that they ought to go with uh, Haas and Rogers going forward. I don't, I guess if Ramos gets healthy and he's on a one year deal, so you, you know, want to give him some at bats and maybe somebody wants to, you know, throw you a prospect for him or whatever, that that's all well and good. But I, I foresee no reason to change the catcher rotation. I think both of them have earned it. And that we talked about all the time. AJ Hinch can say that you got to earn it. But that what comes with that is he's got to make decisions that reward people for 
good play. And anything that involves those dudes not catching right as of right now would be contradictory in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. It's kind of crazy. I think uh, Haas and Rogers didn't make the team out of, of spring training given the way they're playing now. I guess it's another reminder that this is a tough and fickle game. Uh, when we talk about the remainder of the season, we're assuming that two catchers stay healthy the rest of the season. You know, Unfortunately, either of them could get hurt at, at any time. That's kind of the nature of the position they play. And then Jake Rogers did not hit the ball well at all in spring training. His, his at-bats have been so much better. He's working deeper in counts than I've ever seen him. He's in balls the opposite field more than I've ever seen him. I've watched Jake Rogers play baseball for a long time. So that tells me his, his uh, approach has matured a little bit. And then Haas actually had a pretty good spring training, but he was just kind of written off as like, oh, like, you know, he's he's Haas. Uh, well, at the end of the day, like, if this guy can produce in the minors, if he can produce in spring training, why can't he produce in the major leagues? And he's showing that right now. It was pretty funny. AJ Hinch got asked uh, the other day, like, what are you going to do? You know, what's the plan for Wilson Ramos? What happens, you know, when he gets healthy and comes back? And AJ did a great job of deflecting it and kind of said, well, well, we'll talk about that when it becomes a little bit more relevant day to day, which tells you two things. Wilson Ramos is probably a long way off. And number two, uh, AJ Hinch is not going to address that because <laughs> the chances we actually see Wilson Ramos again probably are not super high pending um, an injury to another catcher. Well, Haas, you put this line in the story. I don't think he no longer uh, is in the category of organizational depth. And 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 that has to – because the whole – not going to spoil it too much. People should go read it. But the whole point is that like he hated that because it was sort of like a dismissive, don't really have like a whole lot of weight statement, right? Is that like here, – Well, here, here's a good here's a good journalism nugget. So – yeah, I'm asking Haas kind of like, what's it like being in the minors for that long? And he's quoted in the story. He says, you know, it was frustrating. And when you ask, what can you do better? He never really got an answer. They said, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. And he knew he was blocked behind some good catchers in the Indian system. And that was fair and that was realistic. Um, but you could tell, you know, that that, that kind of weighed on him. He felt like he didn't really have a solution to get himself to the majors. And then I said, was it was it tough when you knew that they just viewed you as organizational depth? You know, and then rather than elaborate and continue to go in on it more, he said, oh, no, I, I never viewed it like that. I just, you know, showed up and enjoyed the clubhouse and kind of went into the cliche mode. So he only went so yeah. far. Okay, on bruh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. bruh. <laughs> After he was the one who brought it up and he was the one expressing his frustration, then he dialed back on it uh, just a little bit, which, which again, I guess I get. But, yeah, his, his thoughts at first were pretty unfiltered. Like, And think about it. It's not fun being organizational depth. It can't be very fun. Imagine you and your job thinking no matter how well you do it, no matter how, uh, how good you do it, how well you perform, you're not ever going to earn a promotion. You know, That would not give most people very good job satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, no, uh, we'll transition here to some of the younger guys. We've seen a good bit. Okay, so I mentioned earlier about how we don't have much evidence of AJ listening to this podcast and then having something play out. We have way back talked about how maybe some of these infield positions, like it's not that big a deal where they get placed because of the shifts and how that kind of negates it a little bit. And what happens uh, yesterday? Isak Paredes starting not at third base, not at second base, not even at first base, at shortstop. And AJ, I mean, I know it's coach speak, but it, it does perfectly sum it up. It's like, I don't know, why not? You know, like, uh, like, why, why should I, you know, why should I not do it? And so I applaud him for just being like, hey, kid, you want to play? Sometimes you got to be a little uncomfortable. Maybe you're not used to it. I know he came up, but, you know, go go do it, kid. I like to envision A.J. Hinch was just like, had this mischievous grin on his face as he was writing that lineup card. Like the Grinch like, gif or the, yeah. like, the wrinkled <laughs> smile? I think that's what it was because I think he was like, 
I know the first thing the media is asking me tomorrow. <laughs> I know what all the fans on Twitter are about to be complaining about. I'm doing it anyway, you know, <laughs> just kind of giving an F you to everyone. You think he sucked Fridays, can't play shortstop? He's going to be just fine. He, he's probably not an everyday shortstop. He's definitely not an everyday shortstop. But he went out there and he, he, he got tested. He had a ball hit very hard right at him that he honestly, he probably doesn't make that play if he's not a third baseman because he just knocked it down and, and uh, gathered and made a really strong throw. He had, it was scored a base hit, you know, a backhand play that, he wasn't able to make. It was very slippery and wet when that ball was hit. So I could, you know, I didn't think it was a terrible misplay. And he had. He's, he's been playing kind of as a shortstop when the Tigers are shifted over, you know, when he was playing third his first couple of games. So when you look at it like that, he wasn't being asked to do anything he hasn't done before. And obviously he, he has experience playing shortstop in the minors. Started getting that experience again recently in AAA. I was surprised we saw it this early. And I think it was. It was classic A.J. Hinch just saying, you're going to let him do it until he shows you he can't, which more I think about a pretty good life philosophy, right? Like, don't say something can't work unless you don't give it a try. And uh, that's what we continue to see with A.J. Hinch as the manager here. Now, I got to admit, Cody, I'm, I'm, I'm beefing with you a little bit because it's okay, Merle. It's okay. And yeah, we got some thunder rolling in. Dog's a little stressed. We got a little beef, Cody, because you know how much I love Derek Hill. You know how I am the conductor of the train. And you start talking to him about health. And then next thing you know, he makes a classic Derek Hill play where he makes an amazing catch, bangs into the wall, and gets hurt. And does does Tigers do the Tigers fan base do they need to blame you for this event? Do you accept responsibility? Yes, I accept full responsibility. The blame is all on me. I would if we weren't really this was technically not on the record, but I don't think Al will mind me sharing it. Maybe he will, because if you really want to blame someone, maybe you could blame Al Avila. One of the things when we were just chatting in the dugout, I was like, oh, it must be, must be nice to see Hill finally starting to thrive a little bit. And he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, he's been hurt almost every season in the minors. He, Al was actually the one who first brought that up. Uh, and I was like, oh, I mean, I obviously knew that, but I was like, that is a really good point. This guy's just never been healthy until, you know, uh, the, about the last year or so. So I have an interview with Derek Hill before the game, and that was, I think, the first question I asked him. And I prefaced it. I said, I don't want to jinx you, man, but how nice is it to finally be healthy? You know, and he kind of laughed and, oh, it was, you know, it's great. You know, uh, talked a little bit about his journey, all the injuries he's had. He's an outfielder who had Tommy John surgery. Um, he's ran into a million walls and, and had a, a bunch of other nicks and bruises over the course of his minor league career. You know, but here was Derek Hill, first round pick, almost seven years in the minors. Now he's up here. Now you can see A.J. Hinch letting Derek Hill be himself, hit a ground ball through the gap, go steal second base, go play elite center field, and uh, don't feel like you have to be something you're not. I think I thought he was really fun to watch play his first couple games up here in the majors, as, as we all know he normally is. Uh, I go up into the stands. I talk with Derek Hill's father, who played 12 years in the minor leagues, never made the big leagues, then spent 15 years as, as, as a scout uh, with the Dodgers and Diamondbacks organizations, um, you know, talk more about Derek's journey. Derek's father was a lot of fun to talk to, very candid. Gave me a story about uh, Derek working with Barry Bonds a couple off seasons ago. So I, I go up to the press box and I'm like, all right, this is this is it. I got some good stuff like Derek Hill. He's he's this fun, flashy player. I'm gonna write a great story. I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get this out tomorrow. So rather than you know, I'm going to go in the back of the press box. I'm going to go in the dining room. I'm going to transcribe this. I'm going to write it. I'm going to write it, and I'm going to get it done by, like, the third inning. And I'm sitting here writing, and it's the first inning. And I look up, and I look on the TV, and I see Derek Hill just <laughs> writhing in pain on the warning track. So, number one, I'm pissed because, all right, I'm no longer writing this story. Number two, the guy actually got hurt. This guy who's worked so hard for this journey after I said, I don't want to jinx you, I actually got him injured in the third batter of the game after he made an amazing catch in center field at Comerica Park. 
Uh, right shoulder sprain. So far, it doesn't seem like he's going to be out that long, but you never know. We'll see. Uh, I feel very bad for Derek Hill, and in addition to the fact that I lost a story I was excited about, at least for now. Hopefully, we'll run it back one of these days. Uh, yeah, it was my fault. It was my fault the guy got hurt. It, it, it totally was. Uh, blames on me. I'll tear, I'll, I told one of the Tigers media relations staffers to relay that message for me to Derek, in fact, and I will tell him in person, uh, assuming we see him back in Comerica Park soon. You're a ball player at heart. Sometimes you just got to wear it, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the truth. I, I, I knew better than to ask that. That's what happens in this game. The, the reason baseball players are stu- superstitious this is just how it happens. When you ask by a guy about being healthy, he's probably going to get injured. That's the way this sport works. It's the craziest thing. And and like you said, I was inherently satisfied with the Derrick Hill experience up to that point. Uh, watching him track balls, the enthusiasm by which he plays, running with reckless abandon on the bases, uh, definitely held my breath when I when I saw that. I think actually I was listening to it on the radio and then I went to like pull up the stream real quick to see what happened because uh you know it was like worst case scenario. But hopefully it ends up not being uh part of the trend that he's had up to this point in his professional career. Uh but it allowed another guy to kind of come up and get a shot and he's already had a had a moment. Daz Cameron who the injury bug has definitely been a part of his story and even this year and he comes and after that rain delay on Friday night hits a uh, game tying home run the ninth his first career major league home run and also made a pretty fine play in the outfield uh after lamenting and groaning for a long time, and justifiably so, about the return of the Justin Verlander trade, and then especially when Franklin Perez uh, got DFA'd, released, signed the minor league deal, um, all that stuff. You got two guys up here who, at the very least, show promise. I mean, this is as optimistic as that Verlander trade has looked since the immediate aftermath when you just saw the prospect ranking. Now, I'm not making a bold prediction, but it is kind of funny that we, you know, talk about it so much and, you know, got Jake Rogers playing well. Dash Cameron just had his first career home run, and maybe it's not sustainable. Maybe they won't, you know, become everyday big leaguers or um, even rotational guys, but, you know, it's at least nice to see some sort of physical return on the field of guys they had to trade, possibly the most popular uh, one of the most popular uh, players on this in franchise history of his generation. Yeah, I've already seen this one pop up on Twitter too. That you know, you're right. A month ago, it was like, oh, the Verlander trade is a disaster. Now it's like, oh, the Verlander trade's great. We have you know Daz Cameron and Jake Rogers playing well. Again, I don't know. You know, Daz Cameron. And that's not yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying that it's at least nice to see him wearing the old English D. Yeah. No, um, no totally. as opposed to being stuck in the right. minors or you know whatever. It's at least nice to see that. Yeah, and you see, you know, the reason the Tigers have liked Daz Cameron for a long time: the tools, the the speed. Um, you know, some deceptive pop in the bat. Can he hit consistently? I have no idea. For a while, he was being touted as the center fielder of the future. I don't really think that's the case anymore. Uh, for a while, Jake Rogers was the catcher of the future. Now it's like, hopefully this guy's a really good defensive catcher who can hit well enough to stick in the bigs, maybe as a backup or maybe, may, you know, maybe more. Um, they're, you know, I, I think their ceilings for either of them are still not as high as, as maybe we once liked to dream about. But you're right. It's also... They are up here in the majors. They are playing well. They're capable of doing something. They weren't well-regarded prospects for no reason. So that's that's a good reminder. Um, and they're both fun to watch play. You know, if nothing else, let's enjoy Das Cameron making some good catches in the outfield, bopping a homer. Let's enjoy Jake Rogers. You know, with the the back pick throwdowns, which I think he's doing too frequently. AJ Hinch disagrees. Says he should keep <laughs> says keep doing it. 
Uh, even when you make you don't a, tame a Mustang. Cody. Uh, well, when your first baseman is Miguel Cabrera, and if your if your throw is not <laughs> right at his glove, Miguel is going to stumble, and the ball is going to go in the outfield, and a run is going to score. Maybe you should tame the Mustang a little bit. Not necessarily Jake Rogers' fault, but when you're when you're back picking eight times, you know I, I think one's more likely to get away than one's more likely to get an out after a certain point. And the element of surprise almost goes away when you're doing it all the time. Uh, and again, I've seen Jake Rogers do this since he was like 15 years old. The guy does that all the time. I think I had a, a, a teammate or two get back picked. Luckily, I never did because I knew he did a lot, and I was just not going to get very far off first base. Well, one last thing on Derek. Uh, does does a- I feel like AJ should. I haven't. I don't know if he said it, and if he did, I didn't read it. I had the same attitude with with Derek Hill. I, I forget who said it and what context, but like. I'd rather kindle a fire than have to start one. And that, you know, with the enthusiasm, the energy that Derek Hill brings, and, and the risk of that is what we saw the other day with his injury. Um, but I would imagine A.J. Hinch has the same attitude uh, with Derek Hill about that, where it's like, just, you know, just let him go. Like, don't try to, don't try to, you know, put that fire out unnecessarily when that's part of what, that's part of what he does. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think Hinch has a history of uh, managing players like this. In Houston, he had Jake Marisnik, who wasn't this everyday guy, who didn't have great offensive numbers, but he could just make some impact plays. He stole 24 bases for the 2015 Astros. He was a very good defender. I think he sees Derek Hill in that mold. And uh, a good one from Derek Hill's father, when Hinch got the job, Derek Hill's father told Derek Hill, like, this is going to be your guy. Like, make sure you stay, you saddle up close to this guy, uh, because I think uh, Orsino Hill had a sense that that AJ Hinch would appreciate his son's style of play, his son's tools, maybe more so than the previous regime. And that's definitely, uh, definitely, I know AJ Hinch is like Derek Hill from from um, you know the first day of spring training. So, yeah, and, and again, like I said, he's letting him be himself. He's not saying, okay, we need you to hit 300 and hit for power. He's saying, do what you do, play your game, we'll find a way to make it work. And I think that's a, that's another trait of a good manager. Another trait of a good manager is having to make, I don't know, tough decisions and also, like, the right decisions when it comes to uh, managing your roster and working with the front office and... I was kind of jotting down a list this week, and I don't have a good term for it. I'm just going to call it the A.J. Hinch effect, and it's guys that were hanging on. Maybe they shouldn't have been hanging on as long as they were, but given the circumstances of the state of the organization previously, they just were kind of kept up there. Uh, Christian Stewart, DFA'd, uh, Renato Nunez, you know, he wasn't DFA because he was on a minor league deal, but a lot of people thought he should have made the team. He didn't make the team. Uh, he was, he was DFA'd. Okay, so, so he was DFA'd, and then now he's still um, playing in AAA. Victor Reyes sent down. Franklin Perez, we talked about that. DFA'd cut, brought back on minor league deal. And Jacoby Jones this week was DFA'd. So, um, I mean, three of those, one of them was your most promising prospect at one point not too long ago. Uh, and three of them were your outfield for a lot of games last season. Uh, you know, last two seasons, honestly, with uh, Stewart Jones and uh, and Reyes. So uh, it's only June, early June. Where I mean, I, his fingerprints on this roster, I think, are heavy. It's it's everywhere, and I and I and I do believe these are all good signs of him sort of shaping the team in his mold given what he has available to him right now yeah and we're, and we're not done yet you know Nomar Mazzara needs to pick it up pretty quickly uh I love Daniel Norris but you know someone said he's he's kind of like the Jacoby Jones of pitching and I hate to say it but I'd argue with that's, that that's so true like there's a lot of potential there every now and then we see it then you go look at the numbers over a multi-year sample and it's it's just not there and he's hurt a lot uh, you know, regarding the roster, like Franklin Perez obviously was injured. That's why he was taken off the 40-man. But Franklin Perez was also throwing 89 in spring training, and A.J. Hinch was not super sympathetic about it. So, you know, if you can't if you 
can't perform, like we got to get someone else in here. And I think that's been his message. Like Victor Reyes, the Tigers have an emotional attachment to because he was their Rule Five pick, and he's a serviceable player. But AJ Hinch, I think, has been more like, well, he is what he is. He doesn't walk. He doesn't hit for power. He's not really going to be a long-term option. So maybe we shouldn't waste too much time when we can get. Uh, especially if Reyes is struggling, you know, send him down, let him get right, and let's look at Derek Hill. Let's look at Daz Cameron. Um, you know, why why give jo Jacoby Jones more leash after 1,200 major league plate appearances, especially if you can mix and match and find uh, ways to make an impact with guys like Hill. Get more at-bats for Akil Badu. Um We have seen that. We've talked about it a lot, and, and we're not done yet. There are more changes. And we're starting to see some of those changes in the bullpen, too. The Tigers' bullpen philosophy, I think, is starting to mirror, like, the Tampa Bay Rays, who's just nothing but power arms, right? And the Tigers aren't quite there yet, but we see some turnover on the bullpen. Now you have Jason Foley up here. You have Kyle Funkhauser. Like, if you have good stuff, A.J. Hinch is going to put you in his bullpen. He's going to put you in the game, and he's going to trust that Chris Fetter over time is going to figure out how to optimize your stuff. Uh, we don't really need these guys throwing low 90s with sync, like when we could get a power arm up here, tweak the slider, like get his fastball in the zone a little more. I think we're going to see more and more turnover turnover like that in the bullpen. I think there's some guys in the minors right now, like uh, like an Angel de Jesus, who could be on the 40-man and in the big leagues very soon, really based on stuff alone, and then again, figure it out from there. That's kind of been... Uh, the roster approach from him so far. Well, it's like I said, it's you'd rather kindle a fire than yeah. have to start one. And and you know when it comes when it comes to talent, it, you know a football analogy would be like I want speed because yeah. you can't teach speed, totally. you know. And uh, for pitching, it's like I want power arms, I want I want velocity and all that stuff. And you know because that you either got that or you don't. Um, oh, Cody, I I didn't even you know I kind of shortchanged you a little bit. There's there's somewhat of an interesting development with these college programs and hiring major league coaches going on here, isn't there? Yeah, that's been a trend for a while. We talked about it with, uh, with Brandon Inge going to be an assistant at Michigan. Now Jose Cruz goes straight to the head coach job at Rice. You know, We've seen more of an MLB influence in college and, and vice versa with guys like Chris Fetter and, uh, and Ethan Katz you know, getting up to the big leagues as pitching coaches. Um, I think that the landscape of college baseball has been really fun to follow recently. And these aren't big league hires, but if this were college basketball or college football, there'd be a lot of attention on some of the recent coaching changes. We talked about Jose Cruz Jr., which is an interesting and exciting hire. Um, Jim Sloshnagel, who's a, a terrific baseball coach at Texas A&M, was at TCU, one of the best in the country, coached uh, Tyler Alexander. You know, he, he just left TCU to go to Texas A&M, which is an interesting move. You know, imagine if Gary Patterson. Is that like Roy Williams? Yeah. Well, Roy Williams went from Kansas, well, Kansas to yeah, North Carolina. I mean, you know, think football. Imagine if Gary Patterson left TCU to Texas A&M. Like, that'd be a pretty huge move. That'd be a very gutsy move from Texas A&M. You'd have to fork out a lot of money to make that happen. Sloshnagel made that move. Uh, now he's going to go coach in the SEC power conference that the Tigers like to draft a lot of guys out of and Slosh Angles produced a lot of good arms out of TCU, Jake Arietta, Brandon Finnegan, uh, I think a couple more that I'm forgetting. And then Paul Maneri, who I mentioned earlier, Alavilo's boy at LSU, who the Tigers have drafted or, or acquired in the organization, Jacoby Jones, Mikey Matsuk, uh, Alex Lang, a couple other guys, you know, Cabrera. Daniel Cabrera, huge LSU pipeline. Uh, that might be going away, but the guy who's been most closely linked to that job is Pat Casey, Matthew Boyd's college coach at Oregon State, who uh, has since retired from that that role at Oregon State. So that's like, you know, uh, I don't know. Think of a big name coach coming out of retirement to go coach another big program like that. That move is not official, but if it were to happen, that would be a pretty monumental move. And and again, you would have some more Tigers ties there. Uh, so those are just all really interesting. I wanted to give it a shout out because that's not something that really college baseball doesn't get talked about on ESPN a ton. Uh, but these are some really interesting moves for anyone who, who follows college baseball and knows um, the impact that, that some of these coaches have. Yeah, and it's all about relationships. So like as, as you noted, like it's not an accident when you 
when you draft or you feel comfortable drafting or signing players that come from a certain area because you know the you know the coach you, you know the scout knows you know the pitching coach real well I mean it's all it's all relationship based so it definitely is relevant to uh, and helps explain why some of these guys end up uh, you know coming coming into the system from similar areas or from similar people. So we'll wrap up here with uh, a special shout out to a early supporter of the pod um, who you uh, met with recently. We were on we were on his podcast uh, this week, and he gifted you something right on brand with turning the corner. So I'll just I, I didn't get it because I ain't in, I ain't in Michigan. So that's just, you just got to take this one over. What what went what went down uh, last week? Yeah, shout out Mark Gorosh. He, uh, he he took me and my colleague Max, Max Boltman out to lunch, and he brought me a box with three barbecue sauces in it. I guess he consulted his son, who is a pretty big barbecue aficionado. Ordered some barbecue sauce from Central Barbecue in Memphis, and let me tell you, I was pretty thrilled to open this gift package. It came with a spicy barbecue, a uh, like a sweet heat sauce, and a mustard sauce. And uh, tried them all with some ribs, and let me tell you, I, I've talked about it before. I'm a big fan of spicy stuff. The heat level on the spicy and even the sweet heat was was uh, higher than your average spicy barbecue sauce. It uh, it had me sweating a little bit, and I was a fan of it. And then not typically, you know, not really big on like the Carolina Gold mustard. Like you guys can have that out in Carolina. Like I want some. Texas sauce, you know, but I will say this this mustard sauce was really good. It, it worked on the ribs, and I put it on some chicken I grilled a couple nights later. Since I got the Weber Spirit, I'm grilling pretty much any night that uh, the Tigers aren't playing here in Detroit. And let me tell you, that was really good too. So those three sauces were big time Central Barbecue, um, based in Memphis, and and thanks again to Mark for three really good sauces. Yes, and thanks to him for having us on his podcast. Uh, it's not a rebuild. It's a team build. We had a lot of fun just kind of chopping it up with him. And uh, and also, you know what? Shout out Memphis. Like, I, I put Memphis number two for me. Um, yeah. uh, we, we've had good experiences with Memphis barbecue in, in, in person. And then, you know, getting the Memphis-style sauces, I've always liked. I, I put them number two behind Texas and uh, – and the people of Memphis are awesome. The people that run those Sorry. barbecue restaurants, honestly, honestly, should run our economy. They should uh, because they, get stuff done. they we ate at a restaurant that we talk about Roy Williams. We had a restaurant that Roy Williams and North Carolina basketball team was eating at, at the same time, and uh, it was a long line. It's one of the most popular restaurants. The name is escaping me right now. Blue it City was, Cafe. Yeah. Uh, a little bit touristy, but uh, so it was crowded because yeah. of the results right there on, on Beale Street. And the the hostess who who was getting people like to tables and stuff, it's like trying to figure out who's in what party and who can be sat. It is one of those things. But we have a table for three, so we're gonna get the nearest three person party. And you know, it wasn't necessarily about who was next in line or whatever. And you and I came away like I kind of wish that she was president of the United States because there would be. Congress would be put in their place and, you know, there, she would intimidate all foreign leaders. I mean, there, there would be no oh, limit. She, to she was like yelling. She's like, you here now, you know, and if you didn't do it, like she didn't care if you got your feelings hurt. She was getting you at this table. She was moving the line. She was asking you what you wanted to eat. And it wasn't to be rude. It wasn't to be disrespectful. It was the most efficient thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, we also ate at Rendezvous, which is, is a more well-known place in Memphis. And if I recall, those ribs were amazing. Yes. So shout out Memphis in general because uh, they, they have great food and great people. And uh, if you're looking for a vacation spot, um, you could do a lot worse. Uh, the history there is also fascinating. If you like history, then you have the historical landmarks and the music and, and all that stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a great time. So... Well, this podcast, we're going to wrap up here. This podcast had everything from revisionist history with the Verlander trade to great food talk to getting some insight a little bit into uh, what what the Tigers organization is thinking as we approach, as you said, a pivotal 
next 12 months. So we're going to wrap up right now. Hopefully you're not hearing too many dog whines as they are uh, anxious with, uh, with, the, with the weather going on. And I appreciate everybody listening, everyone who subscribes on Apple or Spotify, follows us on Twitter. Cody's at Cody Stabenhagen. I'm at Kieran underscore Steckley. Our pod page is at Turn Corner Pod. And please subscribe to The Athletic if you want to read any of these stories that go uh, way beneath the box score. That's what Cody, that's Cody's MO, and that's exactly what you get with an athletics subscription. So for Cody Stabenhagen, I'm Kieran Steckley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>